You're listening to the DMZ Movers and Shakers podcast, the podcast for entrepreneurs by the world-leading tech incubator, the DMZ. In this podcast, each episode brings in the movers and shakers of the world to cover leadership mentality, tips for business owners, and much, much more. So without further ado, let's get into it. Here's your host, Canada's leading podcaster, CPA and business strategist, Robert Gold, managing partner at Bennett Gold LLP. Once again, from high atop the Movers and Shakers Podcast Center in Toronto, way up on the 82nd floor, live into the morning, we're way off to the east. I can see Goobies, Newfoundland. I'm Robert Gold, Managing Partner at Bennett Gold LLP, Chartered Accountants and CPAs in Toronto. Today, another great show. Rachel Zimmer is with us. Rachel is the General Manager of Entrepreneur First, JoinEF.com, Entrepreneur First. Rachel, welcome to the Movers and Shakers Podcast. Thanks for having me. So this is really interesting. On the website of Entrepreneur First, JoinEF.com, which is a great domain, it says the best place in the world to meet your co-founder and build a technology startup from scratch. So I can't wait to get into this. But just as a little bit of background, Entrepreneur First is an international talent investor, which is an interesting term in its own. I know it supports individuals building technology companies, and it brings together individuals, exceptional individuals without existing teams, businesses, or investments, gives them the tools to meet their ideal co-founder and to build startups. It sounds like an impossible task. Starting in London, Entrepreneur First program runs now in six of the world's best cities for startups across three continents. So well done to the whole team. But in your words, can you explain to us what is unique about Entrepreneur First and its mission? For sure. And thank you for that great summary. So Entrepreneur First, we've been around for 10 years. And what's really unusual is that we look for and we focus on finding the best talent out there in the world. So we literally have a global team that's scouring all the best commercial talent and technical talent, and then we pay them to quit their jobs and help them start companies. So what's really, really unique with us is we're super talent-focused, and then we're pre-company, pre-idea, pre-co-founder. So we're really at, like, ground minus two. (laughs) Not even ground zero. Ground, like, pre-actually starting. And then once we find those amazing individuals, we bring them onto our program in cohort, and they test working with each other and ultimately form companies. And we've been around for a while. So, So the 10 years... We've had um, just over 3,000 people go through the program with great success. So it's been a fun journey. As an accounting firm, we see lots of startups. We see lots of accelerators come and go. We're now heavily involved with Ryerson and the DMZ. This is a really unique proposition. You effectively find talent and you wrap everything else around the talent to grow. That, to me, is, is amazing. I know that you were responsible for spearheading the launch in Toronto in 2020. What was it like to take on that challenge, especially in Toronto where there's a lot of accelerators and a lot of tech hubs? That's interesting. The challenge was more pandemic-driven just because... Because we were launching in the market and everyone was at home, right? So launching a new business from Zoom um, presented a lot of challenges. But by way of, to your point, um, a lot of accelerators, like I was part of the DMZ previously. I was an entrepreneur in residence and had a lot of fun there. I think what's really interesting with Entrepreneur First is that it's not an accelerator. It's not accelerating a company once it's been formed. It's more about company formations. And so interestingly, and part of why I was excited to come on board and help launch is that I thought it was a really big gap in our ecosystem. I think we've got a lot of different ways that we help to truly accelerate companies, but we don't have that many ways where if you're someone who's thinking about starting a company, but maybe you don't have a co-founder or maybe you haven't perfectly vetted the right idea, and maybe you've got a financial constraint. Um, You know, the fact that EF has a proposition where we pay people a monthly stipend while they tinker and learn and then help them find their co-founder and and help them rapid test, it did feel like quite a unique proposition in the market versus the other uh, more traditional accelerators that are out there. 
Well, I have to ask you this. You've already used the term, and so have I, co-founder a dozen times. Why are we focused on co-founders with Entrepreneur First? What's so important about co-founders? It's a great question, and it's something that's near and dear to my heart. So I'm a former tech entrepreneur. I'd exited my company in 2016 to a portfolio of Onyx, a private equity company. So having been here on the founder journey myself, when I look back at it, one of the biggest strengths behind our business was the dynamic I had with my co-founder. And my co-founder, Bram, and I drove each other crazy. We pushed each other to greatness, but ultimately the sum was far greater than the parts. And so... You know, when you kind of pause and, and from my own experience, now that I'm with Entrepreneur First, it shows in the data as well. Dual founders have far more success in building a company than three founders or even a solo founder. Obviously, there's great stories of, of ones that kind of fall into all the buckets. But from our data, what we see is that two people, one that's really commercial, one that's really technical, um, is really where the magic happens. Now, do you help match the co-founder with the entrepreneur, with the founder, or do you kind of give them a portfolio of people and say, they're all good, choose who you like? It's the latter, but every single person that we bring into the cohort, we have an idea of five to 10 people per person that we think would be amazing for them. So if you join the cohort, we'd be like, okay, we're not going to tell you who they are, but in the event that you're like, oh, I'm not sure I'm meeting anyone, or mm, I don't know if anyone's sitting here, you know, we, we would nudge you and say like, hey, have you spoken to... John, or have you spoken to Tamara, or like whoever those other people are, to try and force those those conversations along? So we don't match, but we do have a good idea and think thoroughly about composition of the cohort. So I appreciate that, but let's just back up a little bit. I want to talk about your entrepreneurship journey. It only took you three years after you graduated university out of Queens to build your enterprise, get your co-founder, and then you exited within three years. Five Crowd was your company. It was an on-demand marketing production platform with, I understand, an unconventional format. So a couple of things. Tell us about Five Crowd's success and where did the inspiration come from to build it? So I didn't start Five Crowd right out of school. I did work um, in the corporate world for a bit at Johnson & Johnson and American Express and my co-founder did as well. And essentially we saw in the ad world that there were high volumes of production spend happening and, and it was really, really expensive and would take a long time to do really, really simple things. You know, like when you watch YouTube, like the annoying five second videos at the beginning before you, you know, the ads before you actually watch it, we were getting quotes from our ad agency partners that those would be $50,000, $100,000 to produce and take months and months to do. So we're like, what is going on? Not too long ago, we were scrappy students using iMovie and Photoshop. So essentially, we saw that there'd be a huge opportunity to take that low-level, very simple, you know, hygiene kind of work and hire freelancers for it. So we saw the problem ourselves as uh, marketers, and then we basically tinkered trying to solve it from being entrepreneurs and actually doing that in the company. And eventually we saw that it was not possible to do it as entrepreneurs and that it really needed to be a standalone business. So we actually left with the support and blessing of our former employer. They came on as our first paying client. And then essentially we scaled the business and primarily our sales drove at the beginning through word of mouth. And then from there, we just kind of scaled organically with some of the more traditional growth tactics. So what I go back to is the co-founder relationship is so important and having someone that pushes you, that you know, um, you know, will complement your areas of weakness. I truly think that that was one of the cornerstones of our, our company's success and journey. What about being a woman founder? The marketing industry and the guys that generate, in fact, there I just said it, the guys that generate these lousy videos before my YouTube experience. What about the hurdles that you found as a female in what is generally a male-dominated space? 
I might have a controversial view on this one, which is I never thought of myself as a female founder. It was never like, oh, I'm a woman. How you know? How am I faring in this industry? I was just a founder. And I was pushing forward, and if something wasn't working, I never attributed it to a gender issue. It was always like, all right, my sales deck must not be strong enough or tight enough. How do I iterate? And then just kept pushing on. And it's funny. There was a period where I think I was more thoughtful and cognizant about it. I went through some uh, women in leadership training. And I actually think it was a negative self-fulfilling prophecy where the more I was like, okay, I'm a female founder. How do I you know, manager, how do I, you know, try and balance things out and, and, you know, act differently? And it was on my mind. I actually think it was more of a hindrance than a help. I mean, Bram, you know, speaking to co-founders being that that really important dynamic for success, he called it out. He's like, right, he's like, what's going on? I didn't like hearing your head about stuff. And, and it really was, I think, kind of linking back to articulating, okay, I'm not a female founder, I'm a founder. And so controversial it might be, but I think I'm just so grateful that we're in 2021. We've got a long way to go, but I think um, a lot of the lack of women in leadership roles is more of a supply issue than other issues that um, maybe we're experiencing in the last couple of decades. Well, I think you're absolutely right, because over the last couple of decades, something significant has changed. It used to be up to 15 or 20 years ago that women in business had far more hurdles than guys. The lenders were male. Will your husband guarantee the loan? All that kind of nonsense. But what happened as a result of that, because women had so many hurdles, they were far more successful in business because they did the homework. They did their research. They made sure they had all their ducks in a row, where guys tended years ago just to jump in. Women did the work and women three to one, four to one were more successful in building businesses than guys in the entrepreneur world. So you've proved the point. And now, as you say, thankfully, we're in 2021 and we've got a ways to go. But it's not the issue anymore. Women are as accepted starting businesses as men. And that's the best thing that could have happened. But I do want to ask you this question. As a successful founder who worked in industry, left industry, started your own venture, is there one piece of advice that you would give to somebody, anybody, male, female, doesn't matter, who's working in industry now? but wants to break out on their own, what kind of headspace do they have to have? This was one piece of advice that stuck with me, and it's what caused me to actually hand in my resignation letter, which is your opportunity cost just gets bigger and bigger and bigger as you go through your career. So, you know, when you start off, you're still learning and getting your feet under you, but then as the years go on, hopefully you're, you know, earning more money, you're taking on some more personal commitments, whether family commitments or financial commitments. And so what ends up happening is your your opportunity cost to go out and start something just gets bigger and bigger. So for example, if I were to start a company now, you know, I'm 32 versus when I did start Five Crowd at 24, very different risk profiles. I know a lot more now and I've got more experience under my belt, but at the same time, I was able to tolerate way more risk and quite frankly, was able to kind of push through and, and take advantage of that lower opportunity cost then. So I'd say that the one piece of advice is, you know, it doesn't get easier to start. It doesn't get uh, cheaper in your life to start. And so I'd say, you know, if you really think about that and then kind of add on to that, that you'll just learn so much no matter what happens. And, you know, worst case scenario, you go really, really hard, something you learn a ton, a ton, and you go back to industry. And so that like opportunity cost just gets higher and higher. Worst case scenario, you make yourself a lot more educated and have gone through this amazing experience. There's, there's really no downside. Since you left your, your venture in 2016, you've had various mentorship and coaching roles. You were an entrepreneur in residence in the DMZ, which I really respect because those entrepreneurs and residents hold the hands of those startups so well. So good job there. I'm very impressed. You've coached startups, many, many of them through the trials and tribulations of launching a business. And one important area I know you focused on is something that's a little confusing to me, and that is establishing product market fit. So first of all, we want to talk about it, but I want a definition from you. What is product market fit? 
there's probably a good textbook definition. So without that in front of me, I'll, I'll tell you how I think about it. Have you confirmed a widely felt problem? And have you created a solution that um, you can charge money for to solve that problem? And the idea of validation, I think, is that's the gray area. Is it one client that is validated? Is it 20? Is it across industries? Is it across markets? How much of the solution is built? You know, can it be a minimum viable experiment? Does it need to be like a full-on like built product? The biggest thing that I think is kind of linked to this is just really, really, really good understanding of what your, your target market's problem is. And is this true for services, digital offerings, or physical offerings? Yeah. Like, I think at the end of the day, no matter what you're selling, and I've sold service business in service businesses, tech-enabled service, and then pure tech, that's definitely a truism across the board. Ultimately, when you truly understand your client's problems, that's where the magic can come to solve it. It sounds to me like there's a lot of iteration to achieve product market fit. Would you agree with that? For sure. I think you have to iterate and take what you've heard, present a solution, take, get it ripped down, present something else, co-create it with a client. Um, I think iteration is just um, table stakes. So what do you think the early signs are that I would look for if I was an entrepreneur and I'm trying to get product market fit properly? What are the early signs that things are going wrong or right, as the case may be? I'll hit on the right, and then we can talk about the flip side of the wrong. If you can get a repeated number of clients that can quantify their pain, so for example, if a client is struggling to grow their sales, and there's one big issue that's a bottleneck, and it's very, very specific in what it is, and you're able with your solution to help them unblock that growth, and let's say in doing that, you could help them earn an extra $1 million, $5 million, $10 million in their top line. That's a pretty good indication that you're on to something, right? So that quantification of the client's value, either in revenue generation, cost reduction, or risk mitigation, those are really the three. Once you've seen that on one client, and then two, and then five, and then 10, you're a pretty good sign that you've, um, you've captured something that has some pretty good um, propositions. And that's, of course, in the B2B sales side, right? On the B2C side, it's really about seeing you know, a good sample set of users that are continuing to purchase from you. So if they come once, that's great. But then if you can kind of have that stickiness and that consistency and or that virality, if it's a one-time purchase, um, that really is a positive sign. Now, on the flip side, if you're struggling to get um, you know, a strong user base to engage, or if you're struggling to get the client to quantify their value, you know, that's a pretty good sign that you're going to have to pivot and, and try and change the questions you're asking to get at something that's more meaningful for the client. Is there something that startups and entrepreneurs tend to overlook when it comes to product market fit? I think... Sometimes um, entrepreneurs focus too much on volume of conversations. Like, okay, I'm talking to 30 clients this week. I'm talking to 20 next week. And they focus on the depth and richness of the insight. And so I'm of the belief that I'd way rather have five clients that are really bought in and, like, you're solving a massive, massive, massive problem versus a much larger number that, you know, it's your vitamin versus a painkiller. It's like, you know, maybe it helps, maybe it doesn't, but, you know, you're pretty dispensable um, for them. And so I'd say that that idea of quality and quantity, I think, is a tough one to kind of balance. But I think often what ends up happening early days is um, there's too much of a focus on volume. Hey, I'm going to get a whole bunch of paid ads, get a high number of people in versus who is the actual person on the other end of your purchase? What do they actually need? And once you really, truly treat them like a person and solving their problem, all of a sudden scalability can come into play. 
you know, and to the to that point, you can see that issue on a lot of a lot of websites, whether it's an established venture or a new venture. You often see the word we, 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 and it's not about the we. It's about the visitor. It's about your customer. You're exactly right. We need to put our ourselves in their place. We need to see the world to our clients and our customers. Eyes. It's the only way to get success, I think. Let's dive into co-founders because this was a, a meaty part of the earlier conversation. But let's get into it a little bit more. Two heads are often better than one. I don't say always, but often. But both individuals need to share passion, focus, long-term opportunity. They need to have the same risk profile. So finding the perfect fit partner to run a startup is really difficult. So what do you think the traits are that founders should look for in a co-founder? I'd really speak to two things. One is values. So my old co-founder and I are actually the executors to each other's wills. We have partners. Like I've got, you know, he's got a wife. We, we both have partners. But at the end of the day, our values are so crazily aligned <laughs> that he is literally the executor to my will, right? It can be just because we're, we're just so aligned in how we see the world. So I think that's one big thing because that'll boil up to your aspirations, to the decisions you make month over month, to year over year. Um, so that's the first. And then the second would be, Really finding someone that compliments you and, and doing so, like, often what ends up happening is people find people like them that they enjoy working with, and it's human instinct, right? You gravitate towards people like you, but ultimately, people that are different from you, you know, whether it's a technical versus a commercial person or whether it's, you know, people that come from totally different sets of experiences in their past, and that's really where the magic happens in the diversity of thinking. And so I'd say focusing on, on those two things, complementing the skill set and experience, and then the values. Now, not everybody can join EF. Not everybody can be part of Entrepreneur First. So where else can somebody go to find a co-founder? I will say, first and foremost, to look at Entrepreneur First, because we do look for exceptional people and then help them find their co-founders. And you're right, it's quite competitive to get in. But for folks that are really hungry to do it, they've got a pretty good chance to to, to do it. And outside of EF, I'd say the the other thing is just put your head up and get out there, whether it's going to events like a TechTO in Toronto, or if it's networking and asking different people that you know, hey, I'm looking for a co-founder, do you know five people that would be potentially good fits for me? But I think the biggest thing is when you are looking for someone, not to pitch them an idea. People don't want to be pitched an idea when they're looking for their co-founder. They want to be bought into a problem and then co-create that solution. And that's where I see a lot of founders go wrong when they are looking for co-founders. They end up in pitching their idea mode versus, you know, listening and talking about the problem the other person's seeing and then co-creating that solution. That's a really interesting topic. Don't pitch them, but engage them in conversation. Let's talk a little bit more about that from the perspective of you working with the co-founder, Bram Warshawski. Let's talk about how you guys work together and how you problem solved. Every Thursday, once a week, um, we'd get together and the sales team had reported into me and then we both kind of were the co-product managers for our platform. And then every Thursday, I would share, here are the five things keeping me up at night on the business. And then Bram would pick one and he would go work on it for the following week. And then we do the same thing the following week. And it was it was literally a Google Doc, a Google Doc with that shit that keeps me up at night. And what that allowed us to do, we, we looked at it as working on the business and working in the business at the same time, which was really, really powerful for us, especially in the first call at 18 to 24 months. And I think, you know, when we thought about our skill sets and how we both um, were able to, you know, to maximize our impact, that was something that worked really, really well in our dynamic. Now, not everybody can find a co-founder. How do you feel about advisory boards? Instead of a co-founder? Well, instead of if you can't find one or as well as a co-founder. What, what, what's your perspective on advisory boards? 
Yeah, I think at the end of the day, it's it's being clear on what is needed in your business. What skills do you bring to the table? And then what are the gaps that you have at the table, right? So if I were to start a company alone, I know enough to be dangerous on the technical side, but I'm not technical myself. I can't code. And so I would definitely need a technical advisor if I were starting a company. I would definitely need um, someone in the venture capital space if I was planning to raise like a large amount. So I think just being clear about like, what are your strengths? What are your gaps? And then recruiting those around you, whether in a full-time capacity, co-founder capacity, or advisory capacity to, to solve it. But I'm a big believer with augmenting your skills, ideally with a co-founder or with, a, you know, your first hire so that you have, you know, day-to-day, month-to-month um, impact together as a team. Can you share your perspective with me outside of Entrepreneur First, but what about funding for startups in Canada? Do you see this as getting any easier, getting harder? It's still the same. I I am often frustrated by the funding for startups in Canada. What, What do you think? I mean, the last 12 months has been amazing. Even though we've been in lockdown with the pandemic, there's been more deal flow flying around than, you know, in the years previous. And so when you look at the activity in the Toronto ecosystem and you look at the money flowing from the States up to Canada, it's pretty exceptional. So I'll just give you one specific example. With Entrepreneur First, we have what we call venture partners who are, you know, well-networked, super influencers, serial angels, exit entrepreneurs that coach our company. So when Alex Norman, he's, you know, at the heart of the Toronto ecosystem, um, co-founder of TechTO, partner AngelList. And then we actually have the same kind of role in the U.S. because there's American serial angels that are very, very keen to get more exposure to Canada. So one, for instance, is someone by the name Milada Lacose, exit entrepreneur based half in Chicago, half in San Fran. He's just so passionate about the Canadian ecosystem and loves the talent that we have and actively chooses to get exposure up here. So I think we're on a really good trajectory and it's never been a better time to be a founder. Well, it's good to hear that positivity. That's for sure. Okay. My favorite part of the show, these are from questions sent in from across the country. Entrepreneurs and startup founders are rapid fire questions. Are you ready? Quick answers. Here we go. Do you have any shout outs to up and coming startups that are on your radar? Yes. Vivid Machine in the ag tech space. What's your favorite show or theater that you've been involved in? Oh, rent. Always rent. Favorite food? Sushi. Early bird or night owl? Early bird. Favorite quote, oh, not me. Favorite quote or a memorable piece of advice you've been given? There's no substitute for hard work. What are you reading or currently watching? I'm reading The Body Keeps Score. And what are you watching on Netflix? And I'm watching The Serpent. How do you relax? I love walking my dog, who's a golden doodle, Mina. What's your dog's name? Mina. Coffee or tea? Oh, lots of coffee. <laughs> Favorite travel destination, because we will be traveling again, they promise us. Oh, I can't wait. Let's say Tanzai, Thailand for the rock climbing. Oh, all right. And what industry or business do you think will be gone in five years? Ooh, paper. Paper? We could debate that forever. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Well, I'm going to toss out all this paper that I have my notes on and say goodbye to Rachel Zimmer, General Manager, Entrepreneur First. Join EF.com. Rachel, thank you for being a guest on the Movers and Shakers podcast. Thanks for having me. And until next time, I'm Robert Gold, Managing Partner of Bennett Gold LLP, Chartered Accounts and CPAs in Toronto. If you want to see how we innovate, check us out at bennettgold.ca. See you next time in the morning, everyone, and good night, Goobies, Newfoundland. And that's a wrap for this episode of the DMZ Movers and Shakers podcast. Make sure you subscribe and follow our podcast so you never miss an episode. You can also visit us at dmz.ryerson.ca for more tips and tools designed to support your business. Until next time.